he aha te kai o te rangatira, he korero, he korero, he korero. No mai, hari mai. Welcome to this podcast, drawn from a series of talks shared in Onihanga in early June 2021. As part of the Auckland Libraries and Connected Communities, we read Auckland series. On the theme, Te Hura i Te Tamaki Makoro, Uncover Auckland, we share a new perspectives and voices on Auckland's past, present and future with Kai sovereignty advocates, local historians, authors, artists and sustainability champions. Kai binds us to whenua, to tipuna and to each other. In this episode, we uncover whenua and why, history and sustainability with our panel of experts. Hosted by Philippa Holmes of the Good Whale and Kai Collective Project, with Kelly Marie Francis, Fenua warrior and Kai activist, Dr. Hans Dieter Bader, archaeologist, who researched sites of Marakai, Māori gardens, and Brendan Marshall, a lead teacher of science and sustainability. Kia ora guys, I'm Philippa Holmes. If you were in the last session, you get to listen to my soothing, soothing voice as the host for this <laughs> panel. Um, so for the use... For anyone not here, um, my name is Philippa Holmes. I'm from a social enterprise uh, called The Good Fale, and I'm a multidisciplinary social impact designer. Um, this session is called Whenua and Why, History and Sustainability. Um, and uh, we're going to meander through that conversation and end with some q and I've got some questions I wrote myself but need to reread. Um, <laughs> so while I'm reading those, um, I'll let these guys introduce themselves. We'll start here and go down the line. Awesome. Uh, kia ora koutou, ko Kelly Marie Francis tōku ingoa e noho atua na ki Mangere Bridge. Uh, ane tōku pepeha, ko whiria te maunga, ko pauka te awa, ko hokianga whakapau karakea tōku moana. Ko ngā tōku matawhauroa, tōku waka, ko rāhiri tōku tūpuna. Ko ngā pui tōku iwi, ko ngā te wharara, rawa, ko ngā te korokoro, ko te pauka te hapu, uh, ko pākanai te marae, and um, ko netana rawa, ko mātū tōku whānau, ko kiana koao. Uh, kia ora everyone, so my name's Kelly, I live in Mangere Bridge, grew up in Manurua, went to James Cook High School and I remember you Mr Broad, um, and I currently live in Mangere Bridge after living for four years as Kaitiaki in Ihumato. Um, I went to James Cook High School, I have one younger brother who has a nephew, Seven Harrison, who just won his league game for Papakura Sea Eagles out in um, Ray Small. And I have a niece named Ivy, who is three years old, and um, yeah, that, that's pretty much my background. Um, grew up with a mum and dad, funnily enough. Um, dad is German Lebanese, mum is Māori from up north, um, and we grew up in a pretty standard household in Manurua. Um, did the career thing did the making lots of money thing and then found that I was never actually getting to a point where um, I was becoming elated or happy in anything. So I started planting trees and then I started a charitable trust named Whenua Warrior and we built gardens to feed the community, teach the community to feed themselves and empower them to feed each other. Um, we so far have built 480 gardens in the back of homes from Kaitaia down to Christchurch. Um, and we have a current goal of building 600 gardens in the back of homes by the 31st of December in South Auckland um, this year. So that's our current goal. Yay! <laughs> um, 
Our vision is to be able to make um, an edible organic garden accessible for every New Zealander, um, and we've specifically written it that way because it is about everyone being hungry. Um, it's not race-related, it's not religion-related, it's not age-related, um, and I have found that the more that we can speak about our needs, the more openly we can give and receive within our community. Um, and, yeah, also, it's um, actually, funnily enough, I've got some schools that I need to talk to you about. Um, <laughs> and, um, yeah, so far, so good. We're finding that the passing on of knowledge um, or solutions that our ancestors had are really being taken in quite well by all cultures. And, um, yeah, we try to work um, with the community and collaborate with as many people as possible as well. Ko Brendan Marshall tukui noa, uh, no whananui a tara ahau, uh, ko Remitaka te maunga, ko te awa kairani te awa. Uh, my name is Brendan Marshall and I um, come from Wellington. I grew up in the Hutt Valley um, and I grew up under the cloak of the Remitaka Hills um, where as a young child I tramped and camped and mountain biked and I grew up close to the Hutt River where as a child I swam in the summer. And I moved up to Auckland in 2004 to begin teaching up here, and I've been here ever since. So now uh, this is my community. Yeah. And um, I am a teacher at Onihona High School. I teach science and sustainability. And I also work um, two days a week across uh, the 10 schools in our community. We have a, a Kahui Ako, which is a community of learning which is made up of, of 10 schools um, in the Onehuna, Māori Bridge and Royal Lake area, um, ranging from early childhood through primary, intermediate and secondary. Yeah. And uh, one of the roles I have across those schools is um, working on uh, local um, projects in the local community around um, sustainability. So getting students out and picking up litter and planting trees in the community and bringing that learning back into the classroom from those experiences. Yeah, that's me. Kia ora. Kia ora. Uh, my name is Hans Bader. Uh, my tribe are the Schwaben and our mountain is the Schwäbische Alb and our uh, river is the Neckar. And uh, my Turanga Waiwai is Whanganens, founded by a Fahu about 1,200 years ago. So I came out in 1994 uh, to New Zealand, but I've been, my first excavation was in 1984, so it's a while back. Uh, I did the PhD on a classical side in Turkey, and it was quite a break coming to here, sort of a different type of environment. But uh, the one aspect that I was always interested in is the landscape, landscape archaeology. And so uh, we've done about uh, 10 years of uh, looking at gardens in the North Taranaki area, uh, cleaning up in front of the oil and gas industry. And um, uh, now um, most of my work currently, uh, the, and that's what you see sort of in some of the panels here, is around Auckland, specifically uh, the redevelopment that Kainga is doing all over town. Mm -hmm. And that's a, a brilliant uh, opportunity for archaeology to look under these uh, older houses and see what's still there. 
and uh, uh, the first uh, area that we sort of done that uh, more systematic was Oranga. And uh, from having no archaeological sites recorded, we have now a whole gaggle of archaeological sites recorded. But what is more important is we have got a uh, basic idea how the landscape was used uh, the last uh, 200, 300, 400 years ago. Mm. And it is um, between the basalt flows having small pockets of gardening soils with uh, seasonal camps overlooking it and the focus all to Rarotonga, to the old Pah site. And that's, um, um, I mean, quite, I, I'm quite pleased with, the, with those results so far, and, but it's still ongoing. I just got on Friday another phone call that they found more shell midden. So <laughs> it's still work in progress, um, uh, but it is... The, the landscape and uh, how the landscape works. My big uh, aha moment, uh, I did uh, quite a few years back, uh, just a basic community course uh, uh, with uh, Rongoa, mm. and um, I suddenly realized sort of like that everything is actually connected with everything else. Mm. So um, in, in Europe, uh, as a Eurocentric view, and that makes sense over there, we have this idea that you have the village, the garden surrounding the village, and then the forest. And that doesn't work here at all, because it's everything part of the same thing, so that the seasonal camps within the fields, the trees that shelter the fields are part of, uh, uh, of it, so you have a lot of passive and active uh, caretaking of the different plants and relationships. And so just looking at planting soils alone is never enough. So you have to really understand the, the context, even where there are no gardens, where there is forest. Forest is still part of the setup. And uh, so that's quite challenging for an archaeologist to look at places where there is no archaeology. But uh, <laughs> it's part, part of the game plan. And so that's where, where we are at the moment. And um, the more we find, the more questions we are open up. Uh, we're not actually getting to a point of deep knowledge yet. <laughs> okay. Kia ora. Thank you for that. Um, what a panel we have uh, over this um, time. So... I'm going to start first with, um, so with that title, Whenua and Why, History and Sustainability, um, in, in your work, what does that mean to you? I think um, if we look at the word sustainability in general, um, it means something that can be forever ongoing and it can be built on, it can be recreated to suit uh, the next generations and things like that. So sustainability in general um, is a word that, you know, kind of comes up in everything now. It's a buzzword. Everybody's kind of talking about it, but nobody's actually doing a sustainable model um, that will suit every single person. So what I'm finding when I'm out there in individual homes and working with different cultures, different ages, um, is that there's no real blanket answer to sustainability. Um, you know, if we look at um, South Auckland in general, we're the biggest, most multicultural space, and uh, we seem to be fed um, 
our food story from dairies that don't have fresh food, from pack and save that you go into and buy a $5 cauliflower at. You get fed um, the pricing from places like Bunnings for wood to be able to build your own garden. And and in my um, whakaro or, or my um, kaupapa, that, none of that's sustainable. Um, none of that will ever re- be able to create a reliability on the skill set that you have. And if you can't rely on the skill set you have, your kids can't either and neither can theirs. When we use words inside describing uh, what Whenua Warrior does, um, we have to be reasonably careful because sustainability, in my mind, comes from the knowledge that gets passed on through the generations. Um, it also gets built when you empower a person to understand that they are the only ones that can live out that action because of the experiences that they have been through. Um, and I also feel that when you call yourself a kaitiaki or a, or a guardian of the earth, um, you need to understand how it is that your actions of today are going to be able to serve the people in 800 years when you're dust. Um, how is it that you're going to create a thing that's sustainable enough to be able to feed your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandkids? And how are you also going to get your neighbours' great-great-great-great-great-grandkids to feed yours? You know, and it's kind of an easy cycle to think about when um, when you focus that sustainable um, goal on the knowledge that's being passed from you because you are only a vessel. You, you hold this information and that information might not be for you. And so when we say we build gardens, we're actually building the person before we build the garden. We build that person to understand what it is that they can do to be able to benefit their great-great-great-great-grandchildren when it's their responsibility to put food on the table. And my, my secret goal, really, is just to ensure that none of our great-grandchildren are ever going to pay $300 a kilo for tomatoes. Because <laughs> hey, that's really where we're heading. And the government have a lot of food policies in place that I want to play with along my journey as well. Um, but a majority of those are not focused on our people and on our land and that's where sustainability comes from it comes from the knowledge passed through our people and our connection to our land so you know when you hear another housing development happening and it's in Pukekoe which is um, you know the food bowl of the south of the South Auckland you know that that's going to be lost forever Um, and we are edging further and further to consistent food poverty. We're never going to build the resilience um, against all of these policies that are created by government for communities that it doesn't... None of it matches up. So I think my goal is, yes, to build the garden, but it's more to build the person and then start playing with some food policy, and I feel like that combo will... Yeah that combat will create some sustainability for our next generations. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, picking up on some of the things um, you said there, Kelly, I think um, the way we've been approaching it across our schools on the Kahawiako is we've been focusing on the local important landmarks in our community. Um, and for us, um, the area we're in, it's um, our two Mauna and the Moana in the middle, so um, the Manukau Harbour. Um, and either side we have two Maunga, so we have uh, Maungi Kiki, one tree hill to the north, and then we have Mangari Mountain, Tupani or Mataoho um, to the south. And so most of our work has been focusing on those um, key um, physical features that define our area. Mm. 
and are really historically important um, to the people that, that lived here for many generations. So I guess that's kind of where we've started by sort of looking to the past and, and those places and then looking to the present in terms of things we can do now. Um, but then the big part of sustainability, I feel, is about future generations. So it's um, thinking about, uh, like you mentioned, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, and you're yeah, definitely a real future focus, which I think still today is, is not the norm because people um, think about the present. Mm. And when people get upset about changes and things, it's quite often because they're thinking um, with a present mindset rather than a, a future focus kind of mindset. So. No, picking straight up from, from you on that one, um, uh, I think uh, to actually clearly understand where we are in the present, you have to really look to the past mm -hmm. and uh, um, uh, see where um, there are breaks in people feeding themselves mm -hmm. or continuity, continuity over time and uh, it does seem sort of like there, there are two big elements is uh, uh, the over, uh, over exploitation of resources always always uh, are leading to disaster mm -hmm. long term um, I mean it's for me sort of like a hundred years is nothing it's it's five hundred a thousand years that's sort of like the time frames that we really have to look at and uh, it's a uh, Probably not so much here in uh, Aotearoa, but it's, uh, if I look uh, back into the Mediterranean, some of the landscapes that we see today are a result of uh, utter over-exploitation. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, um, after 2,000 years, there is no way to fixing that. It's just like, that's over. You cannot, and that's exactly when, when you sort of... Uh, reminiscence of what you're saying with Pukekoe, once it's gone, it's gone. You can't, you can't bring the soil back. Um, and then uh, the other thing is uh, monocultures seem to be always be a really bad idea. Sort of whenever you look in, in, into history, it is uh, the playing together of different cultivars, um, the forest being part of it, uh, all these different resources. Uh, uh, the seed, it has to be considered as a whole. It has to be considered sort of like uh, how the relationship is between between them, and um, as if if we want to, as archaeologists, understand how Maori lived 300 and 400 years ago, we cannot just sort of like just count the shell in the shell midden and think, okay, that's done, but we have to look wider uh, to really understand how that worked and the migration through uh, the the rohe then with the digging sticks, it's not ploughing, it's not turning the sod over, but it's only aerating it. So there is a lot of sustainability and even uh, crop rotations uh, because a, a kumara uh, plot only lasts about three, four uh, years and then the, uh, the goodness is sucked out of the soil and then the goodness has to sort of uh, replenish itself. So you need another... 15 years in between before you can use again. I mean, these are really long cycles that, uh, and, and I think that's what we're doing wrong again, sort of steering at the price of dairy next year or two years after is, is way too short, the thinking. 
you really have to have that generational thinking and again sort of reflected sort of, of what we do today, does it benefit seven generation from us? Mm. What are some of the really good stuff that you're seeing in your spaces, um, whether it's the work that you're doing having an impact on community or, or governmental decision-making or policies or some amazing stories in the community or what we're seeing in schools um, around this topic of um, whenua and why? Yeah, cool. Um, so some of the wins that I see, because um, a majority of my work is done on kind of an individual basis, like an indi- individual family or an individual woman with her children or an individual man with, um, you know, his family. Or What I see a lot of is it clicking, you know, it clicking inside their minds as to what they can do to be able to benefit their people in their land. Um, an example was a lady last week, we built a garden for in the back of her home, but when we arrived, um, she had massive gardens, and she had huge silver beets and she, um, you know, accidentally threw an old tomato over there and now she's got 50 tomatoes in June, you know, like, and she's clicking to what it is that she can make herself important for inside her community. And, um, you know, her intentions are to build a pataka kai so that she can put the food that she grows inside her backyard into there because there is an excessive amount um, but I think I'm privileged enough to be able to hear their stories. Um, I tell my funeral warriors that when you are at a garden and somebody is telling you a memory, any, any type of memory, that's when you've won. It's not when the garden's done and we're packing our tools in and going home. You've won when that person feels safe enough to be able to tell you this is what my nana used to do, or I, I did this with my sister at her house, or, you know, whatever their stories might be. I can't wait till the kids get home from school so that I can teach them how to water. Those are the things I get to have pretty much four times a day, really, because I have four different opportunities to build a garden for four different families. And again, I know I keep bringing up the race and the religion thing, but it literally is. It's, there's an innocence about food. Um, and the fact that we all need to do it to survive. We need to do food. So whoever decided that we need to pay for food, I'm going to talk to them. But, um, you know, where did that come from? And I, I feel like the idea of having to pay for food has come from the idea that we own stuff. We own this land. We did this with this land. I now sell this to you. It is tomatoes at $300 a kilo you have not got the knowledge to be able to grow your own, so you have to pay me that $300 a kilo for these tomatoes. But what I also see, the, the, the goodness that comes from that are people realising that they'll never have to pay that. They'll never get to a point where they have to rely on pack and save to stock tomatoes out of season at $300 a kilo. So we've had a three-year-old who was a mute um, grab a spoon, unlock the back door, completely unsafe, but anyway... Um, go outside and tap on the soil and go, worms, worms, worms. And that was his first word. Um, and that was after a project we did in Pukekoi. And those kind of key uh, stories are the ones that keep me going. They're the ones that keep that family going. That mama now knows that her son can speak. It's just she hasn't had him in the right spaces to be able to do it. Um, and learning these things individually via each whanau and knowing what it is that I'm doing is going to support them to do what they do in the community, that's, that's my win, yeah. 
Yeah, I think um, in terms of a lot of the environmental projects we've been working in, on, I think it's it's not just about the thing that we're doing. It's about the uh, developing uh, the people and empowering, the, in, the, in my case, the young people, um, and giving them a sense of agency that they feel they can do something to make a difference. So it's not just the action, it's actually the way people are changing through that process. And so one of the big projects we've been doing has been focusing on our moana, and um, we have, um, as, a, as a group of schools, um, committed to being kaitiaki of two of our local beaches, Maui Boat Club Beach and also um, Tomanu um, Reserve. So we regularly go down as a group of schools to audit the beach. We work with an organisation called Sustainable Coastlines, um, and we do a beach audit of the beach, and we pick up everything in a marked area on the beach, and then we take it back and we audit it. So all the tiny bits of plastic, tiny bits of glass, we count it all up, we weigh it, all the students do all this. And they record it on a, a big um, database, which is a national database. And the data from that database actually goes into feed into the UN Sustainable uh, Development Goals. It's actually like a citizen science project that the kids are part of. So it, a really great project to be part of. Um, but I guess the point I'm making around that is actually not just what we're doing, but it's what the students are learning from that and how they're developing a sense of agency um, to feel that they can actually do something about that problem. So they find stuff on the beach, they find little bits of plastic, they find lolly wrappers, they find biscuits, containers um, and so forth. And they think about ways that they, in their homes, with their whanau and their communities and their schools, can actually reduce that waste. Um, so it's, yeah, it's about empowering them um, and their sense of agency. I think in my line of work, it's uh, in, in a way quite similar. If there's a, a, a small personal um, uh, events, if you want, uh, that are really the most satisfying. Um, we had uh, for one of the sites, uh, tanks over there, it's a little reconstruction of a seasonal camp that we found under a few of the houses. And we had uh, the local school out with about 120 primary school kids and uh, um, uh, had a cultural sort of presentation by the cultural monitor and I did the archaeological presentation. And um, I think that we, we kept them nearly for two hours to sort of, without sort of getting completely bored, which I would think was a, was a major success. <laughs> so they obviously, it was obviously interesting enough. And, uh, and I, th I, I would think that they, 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 will uh, they will keep that in their memory for, for, for the future. And they will sort of like starting to ask questions. And that's all we really want is that the, that the young ones start asking the right questions. Um, the sort of like an, an, another event uh, in East Tamaki when we were excavating there and we realized that it's during that period, 1830 to 1860, uh, when uh, Maori were feeding Auckland, mm. not the other way around, but Maori were feeding Auckland and without Maori, Auckland would not have existed. Mm. Um, that was the time when that piece of land was at its most fertile and its most productive. And uh, once Europeans came in, it was just made into a, um, a horse farm. And that was it, mm. just grazing. 
And when uh, the, the cultural, one of the cultural monitors were standing there, we were talking about that and sort of I said like, okay, you realize that in that period it was at this most. And he was just looking at me and sort of saying, oh man, the old stories were right. And I mean, that's deeply satisfying for an archaeologist when you hear something like that. That's, um, that's going to sit with me for a bit, yeah. that, those stories. I hear a lot about, um, from what you guys are sharing, there's a sense of you know, history and looking back um, where we are today in future mindsets and really thinking about, I guess, how, how we are history today mm-hmm. and what we're going to do going forward. And, and some of the stuff I think you're saying, Hans, about... It, our sense of time, of what we think is long, is, is relatively short or a blip in, in for the land and, and for the water. What, um, what are some things that you think, you know, when we think about food and we think about food systems, it can get quite monopolised by talking about um, the, I guess, capitalist models that, that go around food systems or what's on our plate or who has what's on our plate in shops. Um, but there's this whole ecosystem and it's, if we don't have the land and we don't have water, we are not going to have um, food and we don't have the right knowledge as well. Mm. But what's some things that you would love to see people doing today in their lives? This one I think is um, definitely not a blanket answer because um, what I'm learning with my work is that every single household, every single individual, every single community, street, everybody is different and requires a different answer. But ideally, um, what we would be able to get to is we would stop mum who is picking up the kids from rugby training and getting onto the motorway because she's got to get home and the laundry should be done by now, but it's about to rain. So get that mum who's in a rush to be able to just send her child outside to get food, which means that she now is not going, I've got to do the washing, but I've got to get it to the mad butchers and then I've got to get a pack save and then the fruit shop is going to close in 10 minutes. That's our current food system. We do that, you know, and... I feel like it's a real, um, real lifestyle change that I'm asking people to do by building a garden in their backyard, but it is not that difficult. Um, it is a way of being able to create food and create your own food system, become sustainable, build your resilience, get the blah, 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 all the keywords. But long story short, if we were able to just give a kid a basket and that child go out and you go, I need spinach, capsicum and red onion and then they go outside they a know what all of those things are b they know what it looks like when it's harvestable c they come back with the right amount and then you cook dinner that is like the perfect fenwell warrior case really that's that's where i want us to be i'd like us to be able to not be fearful of losing our garden that we've worked on for 10 years because we need to move home because you're going to move to a home that has a garden in it that's just as flourishing as the one you left. You know, I'd like us to be so in tune with um, how to create food and how to create connection within our community that there's just no discrepancy financially, there's no um, time wasted, there's, we can get straight to the point, we know that, okay, my silver beet can feed the entire of the street, so what are they going to be able to feed me? That's right, Sierra planted tomatoes. We've got spring onions down there. Now we all have silver beet, spring onions, and tomatoes. 
I feel like the connection that can be started is just figuring out, open your fridge and figure out what you spend money on now and then plant that. You know, that's, that's where I'm at. Plant, plant what you buy because then you don't have to buy it anymore. And you already know how to eat it. You already know what it looks like when you're ready to eat it. If we could get every household to do that, then it would seriously change our food systems in Aotearoa. And also, Ihu Mātou, everyone's heard of Ihu Mātou, eh? It's kind of that place with the occupation thing. Um, they were on the news for a while, bloody hell. Um, but no, that, that contributed heavily to feeding the entire Auckland. And in 1863, that land was taken away from the Māori that were there and demolished, lost all the gardens. It was pre-sold to an overcrowded London and the families were on the way before the Māori were kicked off. But the reality is those lands used to feed the entire of Auckland. You know, when we talk about the moana and the things that we're doing to save it, that used to be the fridge, you know. Um, we used to dig a hole and that's another fridge. Put some rocks in there, cool as, you know, use the wind, all good. And either none of that is possible now and needs to be, or people don't know how to and aren't and need to be. So, um, yeah, I think, I, think, I think that's my cordial for that one. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I think, um, yeah, picking up on some of those things, I, from the times that we've been down with students to, to collect litter from our foreshore areas, um, one of the big things that we keep finding down on the foreshore is, like, food packets of some sort, right? It might be like takeaway containers or old bottles of fizzy drink or lolly wrappers and all this kind of stuff. And it's almost all like processed food. It's not high quality food, often full of sugar and yeah, being really processed. Um, Yeah, it's kind of this irony that we're finding all this stuff down here on the beach. And then you mentioned about how the Moana um, was like this food basket with all the Kaimana from the ocean and then from from the land as well. And then we've got the situation where people are buying all this low-quality, high-processed food and then just throwing away the rubbish. It's kind of like... My hope is that people would um, think not just about recycling what they buy, but actually really think about their consumption and actually thinking about like changing those patterns so that we don't buy so much of that highly processed, highly packaged rubbish um, and instead we start doing the sort of things you're talking about. That would be my, that's my real hope. I think that's a great way of helping to solve that waste problem rather than just thinking about when you buy it, what do you do with it? Actually thinking about what do you buy in the first place and actually not buying some of that stuff that, and, and doing things differently. Yeah. I mean, obviously, as an archaeologist, I don't have any solutions uh, for the future. Uh, That's not sort of my job. Uh, But uh, I think where it really sort of kicks in, we have to... I feel that we have to start with uh, the young kids on primary school uh, and give them the knowledge um, about what went before, that the food has been growing without artificial fertilizer that food growing was far now based, uh, that uh, um, everything links together, that you have to have seasons for fishing, that you have seasons mm. for planting, because you preserve during the rest of the year the resource. Uh, and, and, and if the kids grow up with that knowledge, and hopefully they have the confidence 
um, and and also the the, the strength uh, uh, to sort of find their own solutions. And I think I think that's where the lessons, if you want, if you would call it lessons, but if kids are aware of the history, um, then I'm I'm pretty sure that they will find new and innovative ways uh, in the future. Mm. So, which we then, as which I as an archaeologist, stand back and just look, oh, okay. There are a few things as well that I would actually love for um, those who are passionate about connecting to the solutions that Māori ancestors had. Um, I feel like that's probably a key point. So if you want to start your journey down there, I'd start with something like Māramataka, um, which is understanding the Māori moon calendar and why it is we did what we did on certain days. We can all understand that the moon controls the tides, but we're water as well. So there's your little hint. Um, there's quite a bit of stuff to learn there. We're um, in the process of developing... Um some local uh, place-based um, curriculum for our students across our schools. And um, one of the things we're wanting to do is hear um, more from the stories of the people that have lived here over, over that time. Um, so we want to reach out to the community as well. So if people have got um, uh, stories from, from your whanau, your family, people that have lived here... Um, we're really keen to sort of hear um, some of those stories as well. So um, probably the first port of call would be through the website and you can contact us, but we're really keen to, for the students to hear um, as many of those stories as we can. So, yeah, kia ora. If you want to see how a traditional garden would have looked like, uh, the Hamilton Gardens, uh, for a good friend, Birimu Puke, created that and that's well worth a visit uh, apart uh, uh, from Virimo being an awesome uh, carver um, that that is really uh, something that he has created there and um, the last thing is I, I was hoping sort of for the future that uh, um, through the schools and creating uh, school gardens in a traditional way not necessarily completely traditional, but um, I'm, I'm always quite keen to sort of like talk to teachers and sort of like bring it back to that point that, okay, you need not just look at the garden beds, you have to look belder shells and the, the different other plants that have been used for different uses and... and it all sort of is linked together. It's all part of the whole of the whole ball game. So don't just plant out oh, there is like one, two, three, four planting beds, and that's where we put something in, and that's a traditional uh, uh, mara. But uh, look at it more like okay, build a shell. What are the traditional plants? Are the healing plants build it, and they go with the garden plants and so forth. Uh, that would be quite good. Mm-hmm. And hopefully I, we see at some stage sort of uh, the 10-year-old-sized co-digging sticks mm. to aerate uh, the gardens rather than the spades digging it over. Mm. But we'll see. I might have to make them. Um, I think there's lots for everyone to take away from today and um, what really comes uh, from the last hour um, I'm reminded how important it is to look back to our ancestors and really think about ourselves as ancestors as well and what we're um, 
what we're doing. Um, may we all remain curious, may we keep looking um, and keep connecting, uh, questioning and doing actions both today and for our futures. Thank you very much for being on the panel. Um, thank you very much for attending and listening. And um, kia ora. Kia ora. Oh, I, 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 sorry, I do have one other thank you. I just want to thank Auckland Council and specifically um, Monique and Patello for your work um, in doing this and pulling this all together. A phenomenal effort and I'm sure the ripples of impact will be wide. Thanks to all the panellists for their generous sharing and for agreeing to be recorded enabling this podcast. The full panel discussion was recorded and is available to researchers through Auckland Library's Heritage Collections. See reference and details in the podcast brief. Like or subscribe to hear more heritage and literary podcasts from Ngā Pātaka Kōrero Tāmaki Makaurau, Auckland Library's Connected Communities.